If you have your Bibles, can you guys please turn to um, the book of Hebrews? We're going to go to chapter 11 and read the first six verses together before Mike comes up. I'm going to read Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 6. Um, For reference, if you're using your phone, I'm using the CSB translation. I'm going to kick us off. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith... Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Good to see you guys. Uh, If you would now turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We'll be spending our time this morning uh, reading this passage that will close out this chapter. And before we do that, I just wanted to um, recognize that it's a very exciting time this week for us here at Transform. If you guys weren't familiar, um, we are going to have our fourth birthday on Friday. And so that's exciting. You can share. That's awesome. Like, it's amazing. We're so excited. Um, Some of you guys have been here from the very first service of our gathering four years ago. And, and some have come along the way, but we are so thankful to see all that the Lord has done in the last four years. And so we're going to celebrate that the only way we know how next Sunday, and that's with cake. And so um, <laughs> just warning you, if, you're, if your kids get to it first, you're going to have a fun afternoon. Um, but we just want to invite you guys next Sunday, stick around after service um, and uh, have a piece of cake. We're just going to enjoy fellowship and reminisce and talk about um, all the Lord has done the last four years. But it's a very exciting time for us. We um, just have so many things to be thankful for. It would take me all morning to talk about the things that the Lord has done, what we've seen him do. And, and it just makes me excited to look forward to what he's going to do. So thank you for being a part of this ministry. Thank you for being part of the body that is the church. And um, we'll celebrate next week just four years of God's faithfulness uh, to us in that. As we get ready to begin this morning, as we um, are going to finish the 11th chapter of Mark's gospel, as Christian read that passage from Hebrews chapter 11, it just strikes me, and I wanted to share this with you briefly before we start, just this journey of faith that God has called us to. This is totally off notes, by the way, so pray. Um, you guys realize that in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the term or the, the usage of the literary tool by faith is used 22 times in that chapter. 22 times the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 says by faith and then makes a statement. It's called an anaphora. You see it in, in literature. Often it's used for emphasis and it's used for poetic value. But the writer of Hebrews is 
pointing our attention to this by faith idea that by faith all these things were accomplished. And I love that verse that Christian closed out the passage with. In verse 6 it says this, and I'm, I'm going to switch over to this real fast. You already read it, but I, I'm going I'm to say it again. It says this in, in chapter 11, verse 6. It says, now since the one who draws near to... Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's verse... Is it verse 5? Oh, man, I'm messing up. I heard it said aloud. Faith to you is approved as one who prays now without faith. There it is, verse 6. I was right. Now without faith, because he said it and I heard it. I was like, I have to talk about this. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. Did you catch that when he said it? I was just sitting there and, and you're like, Mike, you're literally the one who asked him to read this before service today before the message but you ever just sit and hear the word of god read and it just strikes you without faith it is impossible to please god that's an amazing statement that's why all of the statements following and all that preceded it in hebrews 11 say by faith because the one who walks by faith and not by sight second corinthians 5 the one who walks by faith and not by sight pleases God. And if we don't do this, it's impossible to please him because it's by grace through faith that we're saved. This is all for free. You guys, that's an amazing thing to think about that I don't have to work to achieve my salvation that by grace through faith and by that faith, God will accomplish all his desire in this world. That's powerful. That's so exciting to me. And we, we talked about this last week here in Mark chapter 11. When the fig tree, they walk by the fig tree, remember? And there's no fruit on it. And there's no buds on it. And Jesus curses the fig tree. And you're like, what? And then he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. Because there was no faith to be found there. So he cleans it out and he says, you've made my house a den of thieves. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. And the next day as they walk by the fig tree, behold, it's withered. And Peter's like, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Cool. And Jesus says these impactful words to us, have faith in God. Because the people were putting their faith in so many other things. The religious leaders of the time are so broken. We're going to see that in our text this morning. That Jesus looks at them and says, you must have faith in God. And if you do, you can pray in the spirit and God will answer you. And you're going to have a heart of forgiveness for those who have wronged you. And he shows his believers, he says, listen, by faith, all this is possible. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus is funneling our attention towards the absolute necessity of faith in our lives. For the believers who follow the words of Jesus as he spoke over us in the text last week in Mark eleven twenty two, having faith in God will lead to effective prayer because our hearts align with his and we love him and we adore him. And as we do that, the fruit that Jesus will start to bring in our lives that will come out on the branches will be forgiveness. And I encourage you to go to Galatians 5 and look at all the fruit of the Spirit. And we recognize this, that faith and the willingness to forgive are two conditions of effective prayer. And forgiveness is fruit produced from healthy branches. Forgiveness is the fruit that's going to be produced from healthy branches. As Jesus revealed in the text last week, he, he, this, this amazing teaching of faith. You guys, we also see something else happen, and we need to notice this. He reveals his authority to judge. 
to judge between what is useful and what is not, between good fruit and bad fruit. You guys, this is so important. The lesson from last week will matter greatly to understanding his interactions with the religious leaders here in our text this morning. We have to understand that to understand what we're going to read here. And here's why. I know that when we hear the word judge, we tend to hitch a little bit, right? If someone says, don't judge me, immediately like, that's a very negative thing. To judge somebody is a very negative, bad thing. Many hear it in a negative connotation. But as we're talking about Jesus's authority to judge, his authority to judge is very good news for us. The authority of Jesus to judge is very good. Because we see him in Mark's gospel, we need to understand that judgment, when Jesus is the one who judges, judgment is full, it's gracious, and it's significant. And by saying that, this is what I mean. Judgment becomes condemnation and punishment or commendation and reward according to what or whom human beings have placed their faith in. Did you catch that? I'm going to say it again. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Judgment because becomes condemnation and punishment or commendation and reward according to what or whom human beings have placed their faith in. When Jesus judges, that's hard to say together, when Jesus judges believers, what does it become for us who are in Christ Jesus? It's righteousness. It's purity. It's commendation, it's reward, because when he judges who we are in him, when God looks at the sun, what does he see? Righteousness. When God looks at us who are in Christ Jesus, what does he see? Righteousness. Like, you guys, it's so good. This is the Lord. This is what he's done in us. It's something we ought to be excited about. Because when God looks at you, he doesn't see you for your failure. When you read Hebrews 11, he's not remembering the people of faith for their failure. Did they fail? And we have record of it all throughout the Old Testament. What are they remembered for in Hebrews 11? Their faith, righteousness, their goodness, what they did for God. They're remembered for what they did for him. Because when God cleanses us of our sin, that is it. It's done. When he washes us, when he removes our sin, it's gone for good. How many of us are walking through our lives thinking about what we failed at rather than what God has done through us and what he has promised to us in eternity? That's good news. That's encouragement. God isn't remembering your failure. He is calling you into faithfulness to put your hope and your trust in him so he can use you in this world to glorify his name. And he has not for one second looked back and brought our sin back up to us and said, don't forget you failed. No, he remembers our sin no more. And in Jesus, he has cleansed us from and has called us into a new walk. And that's why Paul says, why don't we just, in Ephesians 4, by the way, He says, why don't we just take off the old and put on the new that is in Christ? Because it's been given to you freely by grace through, there you go. Okay, we're done. No, I'm just kidding. We're we're just getting warmed up. Guys, both here at the end of chapter 11 and for much of chapter 12, we're going to talk about faith. And the way that this is going to be revealed to us in this text is that we're going to see where the faith of the religious leaders of the time is placed in. 
We're going to have all these situations where Jesus is going to be approached by the religious leaders, challenging his authority, and Jesus will continue to amazingly walk them through this revelation of where their faith is actually placed. The lesson will come home hard at the end of chapter 12, and it's a really impactful passage, and I'm just going to give you a little teaser for it. We're about to get into the text, don't worry. But the teaser for chapter 12 is incredible. Because at the very end of that chapter, we see an example of faithfulness. Does anyone remember who it is? It's a widow who comes to the temple and gives two small copper coins. Gives these two small copper coins and Jesus is sitting there watching and all of these people are coming and just putting loads of money in. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, she gave more than any of them. Because she gave everything she had. And by that statement, he says this. She gave basically everything she has. She doesn't have her next meal figured out yet. But she came and she gave to the Lord. And Jesus says, now that's faith. That's true faith. This chapter will close out in chapter 12 when we get there. You're like, you haven't even finished 11 yet. When we close out chapter 12, though, this is just going to continue on. This arc that talks about faith. But at the end of that, we're going to see this amazing picture of what real faith actually is. In the meantime, we get this opportunity to see what the world in so many ways values. And we can look at this and say, but what have we been given in Christ? What are, where does our faith lie in Christ? What do we see as being truly valuable? Well, those who have put their faith in Jesus in this gospel account have been cleansed, commissioned, healed. You see, all those who have put their faith in Jesus, he has cared for them commissioned them he's healed them he's done all these amazing things in the lives of those we think of Bartimaeus who wasn't wasn't very long ago just cried out son of David have mercy on me what did Jesus do he had mercy on him but here in Mark eleven eighteen, leading up to the text that we're going to be in this morning Mark reveals to us what the religious leaders thought of Jesus' actions and what he'd done. It says the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. Now, this was after he cleansed the temple. After Jesus had done all these things and he comes into Jerusalem, the response to the actions and the life of Jesus by the chief priests and the scribes is to put him to death. It says, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Notice the end of the verse. It's very important for where we're going this morning because we're going to pick up in verse 27. Notice the end of that verse. It will come into play. They're afraid of him because of the crowd. They fear the people. What did Paul say about fearing people over fearing God? He says, if I was more concerned about human concerns, then I wouldn't be pleasing to God. You see, when my faith is in God, then all I care about is pleasing God, and and I can let everything else fall where it may. But when we become people pleasers, when we become more concerned about what others think, we've shifted our faith to a different source. And so here, the question is not for them, is this the true Messiah? Is this God in human flesh? But instead, how can we discredit him in such a way that the crowd will not be a problem anymore? How can we discredit him? How can we strip this authority from him so that they see him in a negative light and we can deal with him? Because we already know from the previous passages that they intend to kill him. They're looking for a way to do it. 
So whenever you see the religious leaders from here on out approaching Jesus, know that that's their goal. That's what they're aiming to do. So let's pick up in our text, Mark 11, verse 27. We're going to read down through verse 33 together. And it says this. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You just got to just smile at Jesus, don't you? Like, that's so well done. Like, he handles it so well. There's times where you look at Jesus and you'd be like, you'd walk away with him as one of those times like, nice one, Lord. That was, wow. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of that. I just would have blasted him, you know? And Jesus is like, I'm going to answer this very, very specifically. With the lesson of faith, prayer, and forgiveness just fresh in our minds. Faith and prayer and forgiveness, which he just taught us. And with the backdrop of his cleansing of the temple, remember, this is why they're coming after him right now. He did a very public, uh, I would say, to the money changers and the things that were going on to the thieves that were stealing from people in the temple, a very disrespectful thing. He went in just totally like threw down on their establishment, tossed the tables over, cleansed it out, said, not my house. This is a very public thing. And so they approach him as Jesus enters the temple area. He immediately meets opposition now from three elements of the Jewish religious establishment. Did you notice in the text, there's three key parts of this. Chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders. If you look at the Sanhedrin, these are the three groups that it's made up of. So you could easily just summarize this and say, this is the Sanhedrin coming before him, the same council that will condemn him to death. This is their counsel coming to him and saying, where do you get the right to do what you've done? Their presence in the situation reveals just how drastic Jesus' cleansing of the temple was. It was a very big deal that he had done this. And their question comes from the basis of unbelief. Notice, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus' authority has been an issue from the beginning of his public ministry. If you go back to the beginning of Mark, three times in the first two chapters of Mark's gospel, the topic of Jesus' authority is noted. It blows people away, the authority that he teaches with. Um, Even his authority to forgive sin in Mark chapter 2, verse 10. When he tells the man whose friends lowered him into the house and says, your sins are forgiven you, and they're like, what? What? And he says, listen, so that you know the Son of Man may forgive sins. He goes, also, get up and walk. And the man gets up. And he walks. Remember that the reason these men are questioning his authority is because they want to kill him. This is their motivation. It's not that they haven't seen how good Jesus is. They reject him because of the challenge that he presents to their way of life. If he said he was acting under his own authority... They could arrest him as some kind of a megalomaniac, power-obsessed, because he did, you know, before he did any further damage. 
If he said that he was acting on the authority of God, they could arrest him on an obvious charge of blasphemy. And I don't doubt for one second, because I think it's clear in the text, that they thought themselves really clever in the way they asked their question. Because this question is a lose-lose answer for Jesus. Makes sense now why Jesus answered it the way he did. He wasn't going to play into their games because they were seeking to discredit him. Their intention is the problem. They're not asking because they want to know. They're asking so that they can discredit him. And it seemed like a surefire way to entrap Jesus because of what he'd just done in the temple. It feels like a total setup, and it is. Remember, this is a revelation of their unbelief. When people don't seek for answers, true answers, but have an agenda behind asking questions, they're not really seeking for truth. They're just trying to validate what they already believe. They're looking for a solution to what they conceive as a problem, not the cure. Those who will not face the truth have nothing but the prospect of deeper and deeper involvement in the situation, which renders them helpless and ineffective. I'll say that again. Those who will not face the truth have nothing but the prospect of deeper and deeper involvement in a situation which renders them helpless and ineffective. That's exactly where this situation is going for the religious leaders. Even in accomplishing their goal by Friday, they don't win on Sunday. Right? Even though they're going to get their way by Friday, they think it's what they plan to do. It's what Jesus came for. Their ultimate defeat will be on Sunday morning. Never forget that. No matter what the agenda of the world is, no matter what lies they're seeking to dispel or to, or not to dispel, but to propagate or to prove, remember this, Jesus still wins. He always wins. It may look like defeat on Friday, but it was the doorway to victory. Here earlier on in the week, Jesus doesn't give them what they want. In the same way that he turned the tables on the money changers over in the temple, he flips the intellectual tables of the religious leaders. Intellectually, Jesus just turns it right around on them and asks them a question. Boy, it really is a reminder, isn't it? We should never try and outsmart God. You know, if you ever think that you're being really clever, really shrewd with God, think twice. We're not. He knows. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. Isn't it incredible that if these men had come to Jesus with repentant and humble hearts, he would have ministered to them. He would have saved them. He would have called them in to walk with him. What they needed was a sincere heart. So he turns the tables on them because of the intention of their heart to ask this question and ask a question and response, and it's a beautiful one. I'll ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. This is so tricky, especially if you go back and you read a lot of what John the Baptist said, just recorded in Scripture. A.M. Hunter says it really well. He paraphrases Jesus' answer. He says, do you think God was behind John's mission or not? That's a really good paraphrase of what he's saying. Do you think God was behind what John was doing? If they had sought to put Jesus in a dilemma with their questions, he doubled down. Because John's baptism, when you think about this, Jesus wasn't talking about uh, just the baptism in the the River Jordan. What he's talking about is John's entire ministry and teaching as evidenced by its outward expression. The entire ministry of John, was it of God or was it of men? 
From heaven means from God. It's a common Jewish substitute. So when you think about from heaven, it's saying it's from God. It was, it was ordained by God. John's ministry was the mission God had put him here to do. They understand their own dilemma. They say this in verses 31 through 32, and then I'll go back and talk about John for a second. But in verses 31 through 32, they're totally aware of the situation there and notice their discussion. You can almost see them huddle up, you know, like they're going to call a play. And they huddle up, they're like, okay, 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 okay. If we say from heaven, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him? Right? But if we say of human origin, they're afraid of the crowd. Right? Because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. Now, John had dearly testified of the divine source of Jesus' mission. It was John who declared of Jesus in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 26. I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. You're like, well, he really doesn't say, verse 29 of the same chapter. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Do you feel that pop behind Jesus's question now? So let's talk about John the Baptist. Was his mission from heaven or was it just his own thing? They refused to admit the truth about John's ministry. They refused the evidence and the evident work that God had done through him. Because if they agreed with Jesus that John's ministry was from heaven, that it was God-ordained, it would force them to agree with Jesus' ministry. If they validate John, they have to validate Jesus. Because John was the forerunner. Because John spoke of Jesus, and John preached about Jesus, and John pointed out Jesus to everyone. His whole life was a declaration of the coming Messiah. One denial of truth, one refusal to admit truth leads to another. Isn't it interesting that when faith is misplaced, it leads to dishonesty? When faith is misplaced, it leads to dishonesty. Because their faith was not in God, remember the fig tree. Remember the temple worship. Because their faith was not in God, it leads to them being dishonest. They don't answer Jesus' question, not because they don't know the correct answer. If they would just look at it for all the evidence that it screams to them about who Jesus is. But because they refuse to, they answer with, I don't know. I don't know. They're being dishonest because their faith is misplaced. It's not in God. We ought to remember that, church, when we're tempted to be dishonest, that at its core, when we are being tempted to place our faith in something or someone else than Christ, it will lead to untruthfulness. It'll lead to dishonesty because we're deceiving ourselves if we put our hope in anything but Jesus. We're forsaking the true source of our faith. And there's a temptation at times for us to do that. And I just want to remind you, have faith in God. Put your faith in Christ. You'll be free 
to the truth when we do this. And when we continue to function in that place of just walking in the goodness of who Christ is and what he's done in our lives, we are free to truth now. We don't have to worry about dishonesty. When my faith is in Jesus, truth flows out of me. Don't allow sin to tempt you. Remember the words of Jesus in John 8, verses 31 through 32. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. The truth sets us free. It breaks the shackles. Faith in Jesus frees us to know and live in the truth. This is how faith and truth are interconnected. The religious leaders refused to say that John's ministry was from heaven. They would have to admit Jesus' ministry was the same. They'd have to connect the two. You couldn't break them apart from each other. They couldn't say it was from men either. The crowds would turn on them. The whole story is a vivid example of what happens to those who will not face the truth. They have to twist and squirm, and in the end, they get themselves into a position in which they're so helplessly involved that they have nothing to say. You know, the more that we are dishonest, the more we get ourselves tangled up in a web where we just can't really say anything. Makes us ineffective. So they answer Jesus and they say, we don't know. To save face, they plead ignorance. And Jesus responds to them and says, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, if that's your response, I'm not going to give you my response. He wouldn't directly answer their question, but as we'll see in our next text, as we get into chapter 12 next week, he's going to tell them a parable instead. In the same situation, he's going to tell them a parable. Even though he had given them a veiled answer in his counter question in verse 30 here in chapter 11, he tells them a parable that has really strong allegorical features in it. And it's a story or it's a picture that has like a veiled meaning, but Jesus is going to tell it in such a way that they understand what he's saying by the end of it. They know what he's talking about as he tells a parable about a vineyard owner in chapter 12. It connects to this text. And so we're going to do it in two parts, but I just want you guys to realize something. Jesus doesn't just leave this subject hanging in the balance here. He actually tells them a parable that again invites them into thinking through where they actually stand. He continues to invite them to believe in him. I think it's fascinating looking at the faith that's misplaced of the religious leaders and the dishonesty with themselves that it leads to, the deception that it leads to. And then the faith that God calls us to in Christ and the liberation of truth. Have you ever told a lie and felt like you had to commit to that lie over and over and over again because, well, now I have to make that lie a truth. And so I just kind of start spiraling down into this. I think we understand this because it's something we've, we've done, most of us have done before. Do you ever think about how liberating it is to walk in the light and to be transparent and how freeing and peace-giving it is to not have to hide? To not have to hide anything and to not not feel like I have to cover up anything. Isn't it liberating to walk in the light? Isn't it liberating to have faith in God and just walk in truth? This is truth and I'm free in it? You guys, the enemy would like us to think that we can't be free 
of the entrapment of deception, but you absolutely can. The answer is what Jesus said in this chapter. Have faith in God. It liberates you to the truth. It frees you to be truthful, not only with yourself, but with others. It frees you to forgive. It frees you to pray. It does all of these things in our lives. You guys, the placement of our faith, it connects to so many things that we struggle with. And as God's kids, as his children, recognize there's lots of temptation in the world, but he's given you everything you need in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the light as he is in the light. He has given you everything that you need. Can I encourage you even more? (laughs) Our faith in Jesus, his grace and sufficiency. This is a hope that the writer of Hebrews says is a steadfast anchor for your soul. Just let that bounce around your head for a couple seconds. Our faith in Jesus, in his grace and sufficiency, the hope that is a steadfast anchor of the soul frees us to be truthful, okay? Faith founded in Jesus frees us to be truthful because we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. Perfect love casts it out. And when I'm in love with the Lord and I'm walking with him, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to choose fear when I can walk in the light of his truth. We can agree with the psalmist that the Lord is indeed our shepherd. Of whom shall we be afraid? It's it's a rhetorical question. When the psalmist wrote that, he's like, now I got to figure out who I should be afraid of. He says, of whom shall I be afraid? Because the answer is no one. When the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. He leads me beside quiet waters. He leads me to the places where I can eat freely. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear anything because he's with me. He never leaves me. He's always there. That's truth. That's walking in the light. That's freedom. And Jesus said of himself, he says, I am the way, I am the, and the life. He says, all these things are in me. And when you're with him and he's your shepherd, you don't have to fear anything else. Can I encourage you just a little bit more? 1 Peter 2 verses 9 through 10 says this. This is us, you guys. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." In, in just what we're talking about, how when we walk in the truth, we're walking in the light. And he says this, you were called out of darkness into this marvelous light, this unbelievable light, this freedom in Christ from sin. You don't have to go back to shackles anymore. And if you're struggling or you feel tempted to be deceptive or to lie or have this, this harder attitude that we see in the Pharisees, that we see in the religious leaders in Jesus's time, just call out to God. Strengthen my faith in you. Strengthen my faith in you. I'm being tempted to put it in something else, and that's not where it belongs. Because I'm a chosen son. I'm a chosen daughter. I'm part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That's hard to say. So you may proclaim praises. I can worship God. I can praise him for what he's called me into. 
You guys, we ought to have hearts that are overflowing with thankfulness, that are abundantly rejoicing, because by faith, we now stand. By faith, we are pleasing to the Lord, because our faith is in Jesus. If you are wondering if God actually likes you, let me just settle this for you. In Christ, he not only loves you, he digs you. He really, really likes you. You guys, he loves you. You're his. You're his people. Let's walk like it. Let's live in that freedom. Why would we dig down and try and go back to shackles again? Why would we try and put on the old man when we can be the new creation in Christ? This is what Jesus reveals to us through this interaction with the religious leaders. We can agree with him that the ministry of John the Baptist was very much from heaven, was very much what God had said. And I would say this, I want the heart of John the Baptist in this way. It was John the Baptist who said, I must decrease and he must increase. When people looked at what Jesus was doing and eyes were set on Christ and people were overwhelmed with all the goodness of Christ's ministry, his disciples started leaving and going and following Jesus. And people were like, dude, your megachurch is emptying out. This isn't success. What are you going to do about it? All these people are leaving. They're going and looking to Jesus. What a problem to have. All these people are following Jesus. They love the Lord. They're going and they're doing this work in, in the mission field and they're, they're going to go start new churches and they're going to go do all these different things because they're following the Lord because the Lord is their shepherd. They don't have to be afraid because he's with them. They don't need me. I'm their brother. I'm part of your family. But if God's calling you to go somewhere, go. Get moving. He's with you. He's going to bless you. He's going to use you. You see, guys, it's okay if Jesus increases and I decrease. It's for his glory. That's okay. I haven't diminished in his eyes. He loves me. He's going to take care of me. He's my shepherd the same as he's yours. I have what I need. Boy, I tell you what. Walking in the light of that truth, peace. There's so much peace there. There's so much satisfaction in who he is and what he's doing. Amen? Worship team, come on up. Lord, we just thank you for the blessing of being with you. We thank you, God, for your word. And even as we see a challenge presented to you here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, we just recognize that this challenge that was issued to you by these religious leaders, Lord, this heart of unbelief, God, we just want to thank you for saving us for calling us to yourself. And Lord, I pray that you would show us how to minister to those who are struggling in this way. Lord, you were so just unbelievably wise. You were so unbelievably wise in the way that you handle people. And Lord, we just want to have that heart for others. We want to have the ability to speak into their lives. But Lord, we just recognize for ourselves, sometimes there's a temptation to shift our faith. And Lord, thank you for being the steadfast anchor of our soul. Jesus, thank you for being so steady. Thank you for being so faithful. And I pray, Lord, that you would just encourage the body today that we are loved by you, 
Lord, that when our faith is in you, we can walk in the light as you are in the light. And that peace is the result of that, Lord, because your truth is there. Lord, that we don't have to give in to the old ways of deception. But Lord, by faith, not only by grace through faith have we been saved, but we walk in faith now, Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. Encourage us, Lord, that maybe there are some situations right now that we just can't see what you're doing or the direction that you're going. Lord, maybe there's not a lot of sight at all. Maybe right now your word is just a lamp for our feet because we really don't have light for the path ahead. Maybe that's coming later, but Lord, allow us and encourage us and strengthen us to walk by faith and not by sight. To trust you even when we can't see well. And Lord, even at times when we're blind like Bartimaeus, to have the faith to say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord, help. And it's at that moment that you called him to yourself and you said, what would you like me to do for you? Bartimaeus said, Lord, I'd like to see. And Jesus, you said to him, because of your faith, you can have your sight. Lord, I just think about how often when we feel like we can't see, we don't really know what the next thing is. Maybe we just need to come to you and say, Lord, would you let me see? Would you help me see? I'm in this valley and I know you're with me, but I'm starting to give into fear a little bit. Jesus, would you just soothe our soul? Remind us that you are a steadfast anchor and that you're a shepherd who never abandons his sheep you're with us, not only in the green pastures, but in the dark valleys. Be glorified in our lives, Lord, may we turn to you, find our peace in you, and be encouraged by your word. Jesus, we ask in your name.